You, you are, now are now tuned into the Fusebox Radio Broadcast with DJ Fusion and John Judah. Syndicated worldwide to bring real, real black radio back <laughs> to the masses. All right, everybody, one, two, one, two, what's going on? You're now in tune to the syndicated worldwide Fusebox radio broadcast with DJ Fusion and John Judah. Another week in the mix since 1998 on your FM dial and that radio station podcast or website, bringing you a slice of what we call 21st century black radio to the masses with a fly mix of diverse music from the old school and new school, mainstream to independent, as well as news, commentary, interviews, and whatever other goodies we can fit into our three-hour weekly block. You got myself, DJ Fusion, on the mix and commentary, and on the side, you got my bro, John Judah. What's going on, bro? <laughs> yes, indeed, Fuse Box. Back in the house, of course, with the wonderful DJ Fusion and I, Johnny Darkson, Rocco Rosanna Dada, and of course, Jay Judah. Of course, hit 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 the world with the sounds, with the with the ideas. Of course, we makes it clear. Fusey, what's the deal here's Doing good, doing good. Happy to be in the mix another week. Doing what we do over here Shout out to all of our listeners By whatever means you check out the radio show We highly and deeply appreciate you Shout out to all of our broadcast and website affiliates Who help spread the Fusebox Radio vibe We deeply appreciate all of you guys as well We have a few new partners on board Definitely uh, much love to all of them Check out those latest people As well as all of our grateful and happy um people and standbys we have on board who put out the fuse box radio broadcast through their various outlets and check out all of their great um, blocks of programming as well over on our official blog site at blackradioisback.com our official blog site again again you can also go ahead and check out the fuse box radio vibe anytime through our podcast site at fuseboxradio.podomatic.com and you can search for us via itunes zoom flycast and a whole bunch of other Good music, RSS feeders, and whatnot for your weekly fuse box radio fix and to go into the archives and all that good stuff. For all of our social network people, we're on Facebook, MySpace, Twitter, and a whole bunch of other things. We are pretty much in at slash fuse box radio, F U S E B O X R E D I O. So twitter.com slash fuse box radio, MySpace.com slash fuse box radio, etc. 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 Shout out to all of our affiliates that we write for with planetill.com and the oh hell Naw blog um you check them out at planetill.com and oh blog.com you got the indecent exposure where we expose some really really dope independent music acts of all different types of genres on planet ill and um also rocking and rolling with the staff over at oh hell Naw blog with mixtape mondays and being part of the new music tuesdays writing staff and all of that good business and bi um on the commentary in this week we got another segment of the black agenda report with glenn ford and that staff and crew we got free presses media matters um segments we've been getting a lot of good feedback on those breaking down um the entire latest happenings of the media democracy movement here in the states basically you know everybody should have a right to say what they need to say and get their news and info out there what could block 
um, said things from going on. And a black college joint is back. We got the um, HBCU reports back from our folks over in Cali. So that's going to be what's up. So HBCU Radio Network. Definitely big up to Lamar Blackman and all their crew for getting those cranked out each week. Big up, big up, Lamar Blackman, HBC, all right? No doubt, no doubt. And interview-wise, on um, other types of segments, man, we got a lot that's going to be going on in the next few months. Um, a whole, whole lot on um, the interview end and segments and We're going to be going to a lot of events, getting different coverage and putting that on the show and things like that. So definitely stay tuned. Um, got to kind of hold some treats um under wraps in that regard we also going to have an overall fuse box radio site that should be jumping off in the end of september i've been putting a lot of work in so um we'll give the website address and domain to that really soon that's going to pretty much link all of our stuff in one um big overreaching site and um it'll be good and fine and dandy shout out to my homegirl um nita khan she does her thing in new york right now um, she um, rolls with them. Um, she's done stuff with WBAI and um, part of Bob Slade and their crew over at Magic. Um, known her since college. Really, really good people. Really on point on the whole um, lot of other things. She also um, writes for different sites. So I just had to give her some big ups and props. Been back in touch um, recently in that regard. And just to everybody in general who bigs up the indie media movement and just the proper and balanced media movement in general because while we talk a whole bunch of things you know everybody in the mainstream cycle isn't full of junk there actually are mainstream people who you know do their thing on the music and news and and other types of things we need a lot more but you know we had to give those folks big ups because on some levels they're fighting on a whole other um phenomenon right there still being able to get some decent things out to the masses and all of that good things um, commentary in few things here and there, few things here and there. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, as of broadcast time, the um, rape probe against the dude who founded um, WikiLeaks, um, Julian Assange, um, has been reopened. Now, I find it interesting that accusations were thrown at him, then taken away, then reopened again. Now, for those who uh, may not be familiar with WikiLeaks, they're the people who've um, been leaking military documents and um, recently um, CIA doc- a CIA document or two. So you have a lot of countries besides the U.S. who are kind of scared about, you know, where this guy's getting his documents and where the power is at. Now, I don't know whether he's guilty or not. I just find it funny that one day they put out accusations, then they took him away on the same day. And now they're coming back through. Again, there's a whole lot of, I think, power playing going on in this scenario. And um, if he is a rapist, I, I hope he does get um, caught and punished to the extent of the law. I'm definitely on that. But one thing I do notice is when people try to put out certain info, a lot of smears and slander comes out. Just to put it in people's heads, whether it's true or not. And that's just been a fact of life with any type of movement or leaders who are trying to make things happen and open up people's minds to other things. So um, I'm definitely going to keep in touch with that story because that just seems to be a very, very um, bugged out scenario. Um, Also, um, there's one thing that kind of has me annoyed. Like this past week has been the week where 
A lot of people are snitching on themselves via the internet and Twitter. I look at it like this, yo. Twitter is not your PR person, famous people. Y'all need to just sit down. Secondly, you know, there's just so much. There's people who know the Fusebox Radio, they know I'm on Twitter all the time. And I'll check out a lot of things. I communicate with people and I enjoy it. Some people just use it as a replacement for lotion as it were or whatever people use to get themselves off and that gets kind of annoying and some people just babble a little too much and um, they play themselves and on one level uh, Michael Jordan's son um, played himself out he's currently 19 years old in college talking about yeah I blew mad money at the casino and blah 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 now he had the casino being checked up for letting an underage dude up in there or whatever whatever of course he babbled all that then erased it like nobody catches stuff on the internet anymore or free this stuff i mean you have tmz and other people who just look on your thing trying to see if you say something stupid because that's going to be a news story on the slow day so that's one situation on the other sports in carmelo anthony oh oh my god um basically for people who have been in that particular mix um i guess groupie is the polite term i can use groupie slash ho or whatever um this uh, groupie slash ho um named cash stacks was talking you know a little fly towards him or whatever and this dude goes ahead and puts on his twitter that he will pay somebody five g's to smack this chick up and takes a picture of the money and puts it on his twitter account and then of course erases it afterwards because you know she would talk a little fly and talk about yeah you know you were doing stuff with other people and blah 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 this that and the third and for one thing I'm like if this is just a groupie or who who has no power why are you paying people any mind whatsoever ignore that stuff you know what I'm saying you know people on the net level get power when you reply and you do other type of things then secondly you're talking about you're gonna put a you're gonna put a 5G hit to smack this broad up on the World Wide Web, and you know David Stern, the, the NBA commissioner, he isn't playing anymore, yo. Dude will will find people left and right for like breathing the fuck as of late. Much less, you know, heaven forbid this chick gets smacked up, then you got a whole other scenario going on with some court business. So. I don't know man sometimes i think people just you know let the blackberry sit the blackberry down or whatever smartphone you have sit the computer down you know or sometimes just be you know sometimes i wish it was the old school way people were famous you know you you just hear what the pr people tell you occasionally one or two things may leak and that's it like sometimes you get to know too damn much with people with twitter and reality tv and and people youtube video doing like the the dumbest crap and all of that type of jazz you know sometimes sit down nobody need to see you on Ustream live babbling all the damn time you know what i'm saying nobody needs to know that you know you're, you're you're banging out somebody in the hotel room after you had a show you know nobody need to see you twit picking your breakfast i really really don't care you know some of y'all please just if you're a sports person, play your sport. If you're a musician, how about you make some music and not a damn trending topic, okay? Like, I'm making a trending topic on Twitter. You can't release a mixtape on time. Get out my face, you know what I'm saying? Put out something. Brag about it later after you put out something. 
maybe give people a surprise <laughs> you know come on I, I don't know man that's that's just me i had to ramble on that for a minute because this past week like i said it's been the week where people have just been retard on um some of this joint and even about a month or two back you know one dude was caught snorting coke on video what part of the game is that somebody had a flip cam or whatever and taped you snorting coke on video I don't know, man. I have no sympathy for anybody who uses these things and plays themselves. None. None. I'm over it. I'm I'm completely, completely over it. Crack is rare! And all the white stuff like that. Yeah, basically, basically, basically. But yeah, I had to ramble on that for a minute because... I don't know, man. Hip-hop generation, black folks, people of whatever color... You know, y'all need to sit down. And also for my men, you know, people are going to do what they want to do when they sleep around and whatnot. But when you know there are chicks like Cat Stacks and these other people who who are proud to talk trash and, and, tape, and tape stuff or whatever, you know, I mean, I don't have that appendage. I don't know how powerful that urge is for dudes. I can only equivalent on the female end. But, you know, there's... There, there's more than five hoes y'all y'all can mess around with <laughs> you know what i'm saying especially when they're blatant about telling all your business so you know the soldier boys and all of that you know be be serious plus y'all have money can't y'all get if y'all have to put out something yeah I, I would i would think y'all can get finer checks but who knows maybe maybe the skill set of these women is like you know want some karen Stephens joint maybe it's amazing i don't know Maybe they're like, yo, that's my top five I got to get before I feel that I've blown up. I, I don't know. But, you know, y'all are at the point you got to make sure chicks have spy, don't have spy cams on them now because they'll tell on you. So, it's, it's, it's a whole other level of game. So, as a woman, I'm telling y'all to watch out and be calm. You know, some of y'all, whether you, if you're married or know you're in a long-term relationship that y'all say is monogamous, shouldn't be doing it in the first place. But if you are... You know, hoes are bold now. 2010 is the year of the bold hoe. Y'all saw Tiger Woods hoes. Y'all seen, you know, these cat stacks level hoes. People don't care anymore. They're like, yes, I am a hoe and I want to host a party and I want re- interviews and God knows what else, man. Just just be careful, man. Bold hoe. That was good. I like that. I know a lot of bold hoes and some of them are okay with me. Um, briefly, um, she said, speaking of bold hoes, yeah, hoes are so bold, well, they'll have a relationship with you, and you will make you think it's one thing or another, have your baby and bounce. Now, there's a lot of people that know that, but there's a lot of people that don't know it. Some people be like, oh, well, people say things people know. There's a lot of people who are naive and who act like they know, you know what I'm saying? You know, but it's, it, you know... It's like the, the year of the bold hoe You know For example Holly Berry wasn't gonna mess with that white boy She went back with him so she can get a baby Who can be lighter skinned than any negro she can get with Bold hoe Example You know what I'm saying Karen Stephens who I think is very attractive And whatever And whatever whatever But you know that's a bold hoe example You know what I'm saying You know so this The bold hoe is is, 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 is a new phenomenon That no the bold hoe is an old phenomenon that has gained more power, you know what I'm saying, in this new media uh, uh, technological age. So there's a lot of people 
There's like a lot of there's a lot of Corinne Stephens out there, and there's people hoping that she don't break her silence. And what's what's even sad is about the bold hoe is that kids can be bold, which means kids were born under the context of of, of bold holdum and and using people. You know what I'm saying? So what, that that what, that kid is born up under that. But I don't know, bold hoe. I don't know. Yeah, man, I had to get rambly on that. That's been a topic um, Judah and I have like, been talking about the past few weeks. And just the accumulation of certain things news-wise that have happened, I guess, more on the gossip end. I just had to bring that joint up, yo. So, But anyway, anyway, um, this past week has been the um, second year since Michael Jackson passed away. The true king of pop. Definitely a big impact in the um, black music world and just the music world in general, R.I.P. Also, it's been five years since Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. And there is a lot going on in that region that's not proper. And there's also a lot of a demographic change in New Orleans that's interesting where you have a lot of people... um, Immigrating from different parts um, Whites and Latinos In areas that um, used to be majority black And there's also a lot of Land grabbing and stuff still going on In the New Orleans region So you know there's still a lot of A funny dynamic there that people had to Stay on their toes with Because I think The unnatural natural disaster I had to put natural and unnatural Because if the levees were done right in the first place It might not have been as bad um, it's it's just still a crazy dynamic, and for the fact of at the time, both Judah and I were in New Jersey, and for the fact that you had the BBC and other people there before the National Guard, it was crazy. Yeah, people internationally talking about, damn, that's messed up. What's going on over there? Who have crazy messed up situations in their countries, and people here in the United States calling black folks New Orleans refugees. Citizens of the country Refugees And other poor people as well Because there were some other poor people Who weren't of color who realized where Our government can't stand sometimes In regards to things So it wasn't just a race issue It's also an economic issue And you know The regions of New Orleans, Louisiana And the other places that got affected Are still going through a lot of stuff today On top of the, you know, the oil spill that just occurred And whatever else So we definitely still have you know our prayers and wishes and condolences to all the people who were affected by um, Hurricane Katrina from its onset to the present, even if they're not in those regions um, anymore. So, got to put that out there, got to put that out there. And also, in a more lighthearted note, in the wasting money file, somebody paid about 15 G's for John Lennon's toilet in the UK. That, my friend, is just call. You don't have a damn thing to do with your money. What What the hell are you gonna do with that? I bet you he ain't black. Negroes don't spend fifteen grand on toilets set on by white folks. You know, get a new toilet if you're gonna pay fifteen grand. Have it be platinum or something. I don't know. But um, yeah, just another thing that. Oh yeah, also the cap, and I think about a week or two ago that I don't know if we mentioned was the. Um, the murders done by an Israeli on American soil in Michigan, and um, there was a, a there was a um, Israeli man. I don't know what he was doing in America, assaulting black 
American men for, but I think five men were killed with a hammer in Michigan. There was 15 or 20 attacks. Then he migrated down to Leesburg, Ohio, then Leesburg, Virginia, in that area, just asking individuals for help or whatever. And they caught they, they caught the joke. And you saw him. He got so let's just say international or people that are concerned. American black people have Israelis on American soil with Latinos and white folks. You know what I'm saying? So that's a whole other layer to that. You know what I'm saying? And hopefully that gets nipped in the bud. Just to say to look over your shoulder because unfortunately not all lighter skinned people are bad people. To, 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 to black Americans specifically more so than Caribbeans. Um, we're surrounded So you definitely have to keep your eyes open You know what I'm saying For everybody who ain't black American Indeed, indeed, indeed And thank you for mentioning that, Judah There's so much trying to fit in That dumb slip folks' heads um, For all of my vinyl people Fat Beach New York and Fat Beach LA Closes on September 4th So, you know, definitely institutions That promoted all types of indie hip-hop part of the closing i'm sure is due to technology and some of the changes that have gone down over there part of the changes are due to the vinyl culture not being promoted as heavily in hip-hop as it used to be which i find unfortunate especially because for quite a bit of time if you want a certain type of collection the main people who are buying all different types of vinyl were hip-hop and then some people don't like me saying it but some indie hip-hop quality has gone down from the 16 years that fat beats was open ain't that the truth and you know we just got to keep it 100 on that because you know there was some independent hip-hop artists talking about man well you know if people were buying stuff and fans were supporting it's like fans support what they feel is quality and what they feel is on point we're in the internet age quite frankly you can grab up a whole lot of stuff on the internet but if you really dig an artist People will still buy a product. People will still go ahead and copy your joint. Now, granted, the net might help you if you want to preview said product. If it leaks or whatever, you might be like, okay, well, I'll download this and see how it sounds. But you still got people who, 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 will, buy, who will buy stuff. Look at all the artists who, they'll have their album leak a week or two beforehand. But they'll still make those sales. <laughs> so that goes to go show the quality of what people make. You know, you can't coast off of old allocades and glory and you can't just think, you know, throwing, you know, a free mixtape or two on the net and talking crazy about the fans going to make them buy your product. And I think a lot of heads need to realize that again, from the old school to the new school, because some new school kids, they get a PR person and they get on three blogs and all of a sudden they superstar. Things don't work out that way. You know, technology is to help people out, but you still got to be on the grind. You still got to tour. You still got to interact with people. You know what I'm saying? And again, you still got to put out something dope from the studio. And also, you know, much love to all my music artists who do do the free product. They put certain stuff out there, but you can't put out everything for free. And then have the free stuff be better than the product you want people to pay for. A lot of that goes down. And that's all different types of music genres. I'm not just talking about hip hop. So, you know, you can't take advantage of the fact who helps you eat and do things so you can have that independent living and maybe not necessarily have to do a traditional nine to five or be broke or whatever else. You know, some cats, you know, all you know is how to make music. But he reacts, 
funny style toward the people who want to who want to push and promote your music and or buy your music, what's gonna happen? You're gonna be broke you be broke, mad and bitter. So, you know, people all over need to get a grip and also not to not need to forget that even if they get to a certain situation where you know maybe get to a major label maybe start getting mainstream playing stuff you started out as an indie so you still should respect the indie for doing things some heads i know for a fact and through my experience in the radio for the past 12 going on 13 years started out on the fat beats type levels got to higher places that pretty much gave independent media record stores and outlets the finger and then crashed back down or you know had that quiet period where you know they weren't getting that love so they you know you kind of burned bridges on the indie media end now two spots that were major spots are are gone in terms of brick and mortar spots where somebody can walk up to you and see you and say what's good you know i met a lot of people at fat beats just on the humbug from djs to other various people there's been 90 million times i ran the percy p selling CDs over at Fat Beats. That's one of my first memories of going to Fat Beats. I mean, that brother was hustling stuff there for a minute. And, you know, a whole bunch of other various people around the New York circuit just be right out front, like, yo, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, when you get too big on, I have internet leak at 50,000 downloads, but you don't got that type of interaction with regular people walking by, guess what? And, you know, and unfortunately, things are narrowing down more and more and more. Now, there's only so many places, like, if Rocket Soul in New York closes, I personally would be more blown. But Fat Beats, as an independent hip-hop head, and it's tying directly into the time frame I came up to the New York, New Jersey area, and was getting my thing on closing, on top of um, B Street closing a few years back. You know, kind of, kind of a little bit of, I guess, my... DJ childhood, professional DJ childhood going away. And you know, those places and locations will be missed. They'll still be selling on the net and there'll be the other international locations, I think in Japan and other spots, but um, yeah, they'll be deeply missed and it's unfortunate a new generation of um, hip hop heads who want to be outside of the norm aren't going to have um, that type of place. Especially in NY with, you know, Tower Records having closed down a while ago. Um, Kim's closing down a while ago around St. Mark's Place. And all that upstairs records, um, quite quite a few places that we can just name all day long. So you know, we really got to respect the art form, and you know, if there's artists that we dig, you know, support them. Because in the, the day, places aren't going to really do certain stuff if there there's no support. So those who make the quality support, and if you're not making quality, you better start doing it. Bottom line, and um, the end on that level. And oh, one more quick thing before we um, get to moving and rocking and rolling here. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, Glenn Beck and them had their um, march, and Al Sharpton them had their counter um, march and rally um, here in the DC metro area this past weekend. Um, funniest thing I saw this weekend because I was in the DC area for a minute. I didn't go to either um, rally, but I was um, around a nearby area was seeing some black Israelites around the Gallery Place Metro Station doing their thing and tea party cats either just taping the cats like oh this is what Negroes are like yee and taping it and are trying to debate some black Israelites lord I wish I had some memory in my camera that day cause one dude got destroyed 
it was the funniest thing. I'm not a black everyone or anything like that, but just see that two bits of counter clash was interesting. Um, it was peaceful. You know, there was a bit of trash talk here and there, but it was relatively civil and peaceful. It was funny because the black Israelite like destroyed this dude talking about the history of the country and uh, and and all other types of stuff. So, you know, just interesting. But that's the most interesting bit of counterculture clash I've seen, or whatever. I mean, both sides were peaceful. Definitely, I had to get credits on both sides for that at least. While I might be totally, while I am totally politically opposed to that particular side of stuff. Um, you know, people kept it civil and what behaved and all of that you know nobody really had the funny towards any of the people of color i've seen walking around and stuff like that but yeah i just thought that was interesting i wanted the black Israelites even chose that particular location because that was literally blocks away from where um the actual rallies were but yeah that that was just hilarious to me so i had to talk about that but anyway Fusebox Radio, DJ Fusion, John Judah, syndicated worldwide. We about to get into the mix and make some good things happen. Um, big up to all of our listeners internationally and around the local way. And we're going to make it moving, all right? Fusebox Radio, 21st Century Black Radio. Peace. Fusebox Radio, we welcome you. Peace. You're now listening to Fusebox Radio with DJ Fusion.
diamond shells hard to find. That's why I had to make you my wife, so you can live the glamorous life. Left my wallet in El Segundo. Left my wallet in El Segundo. I gotta get it. I got got to get it. I left my wallet in El Segundo. Left my wallet in El Segundo. Left my wallet in El Segundo. I gotta get it. I got got to get it. My mother went away for a month long trip. Hung some friends on an ocean liner ship. She made a big mistake by leaving me home. I had to roam, so then picked up the phone. To see what was going down So him I pick him up So we could drive around Took the Dodge Dart A 74 My mother left the yard But I needed one more Shahid had me covered With a hundred green backs So we left Brooklyn And we made big tracks Drove down the belt Got on the conduit Came to a tow We paid and went through it Had no destination We was on a quest Ali laid in our back So he could get rest Drove down the road For two days and a half The sun had just risen On a dusty path just then a figure that caught my eye A man with a sombrero who was four feet high I pulled over to ask where he was at His index finger, he tipped up his hat El Segundo, he said, my name is Pedro If you need directions, I'll tell you pronto Need a civilization, some sort of reservation He said, I'm out south, there's a fast food station Thanks, senor, as I started the motor I least said, damn, Tim, what you drive so far for? When he said, why? I said, we gotta go Cause I left my wallet my wallet in El Segundo. Left my wallet in El Segundo. Left my wallet in El Segundo. I gotta get it. I got got to get it. I left my wallet in El Segundo. Left my wallet in El Segundo. Left my wallet in El Segundo. I gotta get it. I got got to get it. Anyway, a gas station we passed. We got gas and went on to get grub. 
Segundo. Left my wallet in El Segundo. I gotta get it. I got got to get it. I left my wallet in El Segundo. Left my wallet in El Segundo. Left my wallet in El Segundo. Come on, let's go.
Cause I think my destiny is meant to be Stuck near the Chesapeake Some years it gets to me But this year I'm stress free Everything I want's here Rivers full of jet skis Oceans on the coast Backwoods, country roads Bright lights, big cities Pretty women come in droves I'm an any money mo I mean if you got the dough Not because they need yours Cause they always got their own Single independent ladies Getting cake and status quo I skipped the court date For my trial and tribulation Didn't even show my face I got probation I locked myself in And got behind my own bars My whole squad's on the other side Trying to break in I don't need to run my state I'll pass the baton As long as you can guarantee We win the marathon It's a team game DMV We're neck and neck with the best One shot's all it takes To make the lead change Know that we gon' get there Chase the life I'm after Is it fact or fiction? I don't know I gotta write the chapters Pray for bestsellers Stay away from cellar dwellers That could've left the ground But opted to sell their propellers People smile while they push a knife to back And I could use a good girl To help point out the likely stabber So come on little mama What are you waiting on? Hop in my spaceship We taking off Ooh, hey cute girl from the Jenny Come take me on a cruise through your city So we can walk and talk And I can learn all about ya your neighbor, but don't consider me a stranger, consider more than a friendship, you say dead it, we'll kill that, I'll be a zombie for ya, I'm love stone, standing in front of a firing squad, strapped to an electric chair, a lethal dose inside my arms, am I holding you up, from someone or something, that sounds better than something with someone new, just started, cause I know where we headed. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Know that we gon' get there. Yo, check this out. This is Chuck the Republic Enemy. You're now listening to Fuse Box Radio with DJ Fusion. Harder than you think. My name's Shalom, man. Chill on my homegirl, man. Faith, man. What's up? Know what time it is, man. Jeez, all day, man. Word up, man. Hey, yo. It's funny how the world just turns around. Turns around, you know? Everything that goes up, just know that it might be coming down. Just 
watch, just throw it in the bag. Your brand new clip, I just throw it in the mag. Cock back and pull it. Boom it, boom it, boom. Murky crew, I got work to do. I take more money than the local church do. See, I'm a veteran, an ex-con with three strikes. I seize them, seize mics. Who ain't using it right? It with me, and you gon' know you in the fight. Or better yet, a war. The skull of a bar. My alibi, I was overseas on tour. And I never spent cheese trying to please no. I'm no young boy, I'm no little kid. And when they tell my story, they say he did it big. Wreck after wreck rhyme after rhyme. Are you we can't let these dudes eat on our time? It's real life now, they don't know about crime. These are scared, they don't know about crime. Wreck it after wreck it, rhyme after rhyme. Are you we can't let these dudes eat on our time? It's real life now, they don't know about crime. These are scared, they don't know about crime. Some of our dope music to you. You are now listening to Fusebox Radio. This is you've been What up, Tom? What up? What up? Dope man. I told you to come down. What up, my lead? Yeah, come on. No, with me. I black bag, body your track. Double edge, razor blade, cock back, straight shot of your track. I'm the illest nigga doing this. Y'all just illusionists. Your whole genetic is cosmetic. You made up. You ain't a gangster. Shit, it you play tough. Play rough on the blocks out here. Off the ground, act big, get you popped out here. Patrol shots, they have you swollen, get you popped out here. That black cool music, hoodies and cool music. Wolves on the prowl, howl at the moon music. Graphic, classic, my ass. Tongue stitch, savage patterns to leave you hung on a whole other planet. I will eat the sun. It's stars gone. I to speak the bars, heal through hooks, coke cut, coke crooks, touch the text. Again, I will bring you books. I'm borderline psycho, Michael Myers. It's dope music being pushed through wires. It's tightly rolled, so hold your breath. This crystal meth will make you nod to death. I spit sick, no cure. My flow is a germ, slang lethal. Compare me to these. Sherm, King Gorilla, great wheels and worms, play with fire, it's just about to get burned, you listen, you learn, spank flop, it's looking them birds, sipping the syrup, then it's chipping for herb, my shit is too strong, take a sip and you swerve, it is no competition, give a fuck what you heard, through the vine, herb talk, this, that, and the third, when we bump heads, playing duck, it's a herb, use a tough guy, yeah, only follow the words, no time to sidetrack, it's money to earn, and I won't stop grinding till it's money to burn, new day, new chicks, different honeys to turn, up till I bust off my last honey to sperm, like Christ on the third day, I'll return, I'm borderline psycho, Michael Myers, it's dope music being pushed through wires, it's tightly rolled, so hold your breath, this crystal meth will make you nod to death, I'm borderline psycho, Michael Myers, it's dope music being pushed through wires, it's tightly rolled, so hold your breath, this crystal meth will make you nod to death. Right here on the Fuse Box Radio, DJ Stan It's like the kind of music that you would love to hear. Designed for you to go very crazy Emperor, similar to Rosemary's baby Flow is that, took it there, rolled it back 
temperature, polar caps, I'm the Autobahn, you a cul-de-sac, I'm an Autobot, put my money where my motor at, also put some fire there too, then I flow with that, opposite as I could get, they said I never could, I'm an optimist, I'm optimist, speaking from the hood, Lupe, me not gonna care what you say, first and 15 focus, 30 roses by the bouquet, in my early 80s sports car, bumping the waves, seditionaries t-shirt and I had a Vela Gouge, rock Kim's chains, watching rings, punk rock rapper, HR's brains, yeah I got that PMA, all up in my DNA, never seen a better thing, L.U.P. and Sarah Green. listening to the Fuse Box Radio with DJ Fusion. The recent U.S. report to the United Nations Human Rights Council is an excellent guide to how President Obama manages to paper over and deny the existence of endemic and systematic racism in U.S. governmental policy. Simply put, Obama pretends that there is no such thing as the American prison gulag, 
a vast penal system that houses one out of every four incarcerated human beings on the planet, half of whom are black. In sheer numbers, the American prison gulag dwarfs that of every other nation, and its racial composition is irrefutable proof that the American state functions as the principal enforcer of the color bar in U.S. society. Yet, the administration's report to the U.N., although admitting the existence of racial discrimination in American life, fails to acknowledge the vast racial disparities that pervade every aspect of the U.S. criminal justice system. The American Civil Liberties Union praises the Obama administration for, in their words, its willingness to recommit to engagement on international human rights. But they are far too kind. The relentless pressures of criminal justice agencies on black America over the last 40 years poisons every arena of black life, stigmatizing African Americans as a group and creating what Michelle Alexander has called a new Jim Crow caste system. The black prison gulag is the mother of all domestic American human rights violations, an ongoing crime against an entire people. If there is any aspect of human rights for which the national government must accept full responsibility, it is criminal justice, the state exercising its monopoly on the power to confine or even kill other human beings. President Obama wants us and the international community to ignore the human rights elephant sitting in chains in the middle of the room. The administration's neglect of America's unique status as the world's number one incarceration state makes its report to the United Nations an insult to humanity and a lie. The report reflects Barack Obama's habitual downplaying of race and racism. But his effort to join the UN Human Rights Council, for which the ACLU has so much praise, is a complex political maneuver. George Bush rejected membership in the council, pandering to his white nationalist constituency, which abhors the very idea of the United States subjecting itself to the scrutiny of people of color. One of the main reasons corporate America rallied to Obama's candidacy was big business's desire to rework America's image in the world, to at least cosmetically turn a new page and leave the smell of Bush behind. But Obama wound up sabotaging the Second World Conference on Racism in 2009 in Geneva under Israeli pressure, just as George Bush did with the first conference in Durban, South Africa in 2001. Immediately, Obama began making overtures to the UN Human Rights Council in a bid to repair the ill feeling among non-white nations. He's anxious for the U.S. to gain a seat in an international forum from which Americans can give speeches on human rights, while continuing to violate international law every time it suits their interests. This administration specializes in propaganda, not substance. So, it is fitting that the first report the Obama team submits to the UN Human Rights Council is a whitewash of America's massive violations of black people's rights through the U.S. criminal justice system. For Black Agenda Radio, I'm Glenn Ford. On the web, go to www.blackagendareport.com.
Sparks Radio Broadcast with DJ Fusion and John Judah. You're as good as they say you are. Syndicated worldwide to bring real black radio back to the masses. <laughs> uh, I need a break.
You are now listening to Fusebox Radio. Welcome to Media Minutes, a weekly review of news related to media and democracy. I'm Stevie Converse. And I'm Candace Clement. Decisions made by the Federal Communications Commission over the next few months will determine whether the public will have a say in the future of the Internet. The only thing that can match the torrent of corporate money raining down on Washington, D.C., is a huge show of public support for Internet freedom. It was standing room only at a public forum in Minneapolis last week, as FCC Commissioners Michael Copps and Minion Clyburn and Senator Al Franken took the stage. Senator Franken. I believe that net neutrality is the First Amendment issue of our time. Um, Unless it's freedom of religion, which until last week I thought we had kind of worked out. Um, Today, a blog uh, can load as fast as the Wall Street Journal, and if the blog is good, it can get more traffic than any media conglomerate. But if bigger companies can pay for faster priority Internet access, that blogger no longer has a shot. And these big companies know that when... They pay for access. They win. Calling the Internet an incredible technology that intersects with just about every challenge confronting the United States of America, Commissioner Copps warned that the present danger is that big business will put us on the road to the cannibalization, cableization, and the consolidation of broadband and the Internet. Now, I suppose you can't blame companies for seeking to protect their own interests, but you can blame policymakers if we let them get away with it. Deal-making between big Internet players is not policy-making for the common good. Special interests are not the public interest, and stockholders are not the only stakeholders. I will not settle, you should not settle, for gatekeepers of the Internet striking deals that exchange Internet freedom, yours and mine, for bloated profits on their quarterly reports to Wall Street. Commissioner Clyburn largely attributed the success of the Internet to its open infrastructure. She compared the Internet's democratizing effect on society to that of the printing press. I say without hesitation that an open Internet is indeed the great equalizer. It enables traditionally underrepresented groups like minorities and women to have an equal voice and an equal opportunity. It allows any connected individual to distribute their ideas to a global network or run their business right from their very own home. Just as a printing press dramatically reduced the price of publishing and disseminating works on a large scale, the Internet reduces the barriers to entry for new players. The forum was co-hosted by Free Press, the Center for Media Justice, and Main Street Project. Dozens of people from all walks of life spoke passionately about the future of the Internet. 
Affirming net neutrality is critical because without it, our communities won't have the ability to tell their stories and know that they'll be heard. I'm here to urge you to implement the Universal Broadband Plan and pass strong net neutrality rules because if telecoms are allowed to run the internet without regulation, they'll have the power to snuff out independent media. Companies such as Quest, AT&T, and Verizon have received subsidies and tax breaks to build out the infrastructure, but they squandered their money by handing it over to their shareholders at the expense of their now antiquated networks. Any sort of two-tiered internet that frames the internet as more of a mall than a town hall is completely unacceptable. We need net neutrality for your human rights. Please let information flow freely across the internet. I'm glad I got a chance to talk to the FCC. I'm, I'm sorry it's the two members that probably don't need to hear the message that I want to say, but I've really been mad as hell for quite a number of years in the way that it has sold out the public interest to the commercial interests in this country, and it's got to turn around, and I appreciate your efforts to do that. Um, but who said that the FCC's role is to maximize the profits of Verizon and Google? Fundamentally, I think net neutrality is a question of freedom, and I want an Internet that is as free as this country is. Thank you. You've been listening to Media Minutes, a production of Free Press, a national nonpartisan organization working to reform the media. For more information, visit freepress.net. You're now listening to Fusebox Radio with DJ Fusion.
Yo, right now, uh, some legendary DJ Marley Mar. You on the fuse box? You know how we give get down. Give me the drums. Ah, uh, give me the bass. Kirk, could have give me the clap. Ah, uh, got this here one that can't fly. Ah, uh, oh, I'm a love it when you set the beats. Hot pepper got me in a pure heat. No matter if a GC sharp B flat, me just love it when you stroke the keys. Kirk, could have me love how the song feel. Every girl want bun off a CD. So just go and pump it up, speak a box, bus up, don't stop till me drop asleep. Why you have the kind of rhythm make me broke out, broke out, broke out, broke out, broke out, broke out. Why you have the kind of rhythm make me broke out, broke out. You make the glamorous girl walk out. Boy, you make me want draw near. So now your sneer make me move very ear. You're 808, just a kick, never fear. Now drop off of your rhythm, and that me can't swear till a boy. I love it when you set the beat. Hot pepper got me in a pure heat. No matter if a GC sharp B flat, me just love it when you stroke the keys. Kirk of me love how the song feel. Every girl want bun off a CD. So just go and pump it up, speak a box, bus up, don't stop till me drop asleep. Boy, give me in a stereo, or in a mono, anyway, you give me singing it in a soprano, reverb or echo, check out my demo, digital analog, I'm in a karyo, 24 track, sound real hot, bam, my keyboard, boy, mix that, because it real good, put it on wax, I make you get free, free wine and pull that, boy, I love it when you set the beat, hot pepper got me in a your heat. No matter if a GC sharp B flat, me just love it when you stroke the keys. Kirk of me love how the song feel. Every girl want bun off a CD. So just go and pump it up, speak a box, bus up, don't stop till me drop asleep. Why you have the kind of rhythm make me broke out, broke out, broke out, broke out, broke out, broke out. Why you have the kind of rhythm make me broke out, broke out. You make the glamorous girl walk out. Boy, you make me want draw near. So now your sneer make me move very ear. You're 808, just a kick, never fear. Now drop off of your rhythm, and that me can't swear till a boy. I love it when you set the beat. Hot pepper got me in a pure heat. No matter if a GC sharp B flat, me just love it when you stroke the keys. Kirk of me love how the song feel. Every girl want bun off a CD. So just go and pump it up, speak a box, bus up, don't stop till me drop asleep.
now listening to Fusebox Radio with DJ Fusion. Hot days. I got the fish eggs dropping 
any block you dip And I dazzle that boo with the cool out food Jesus and me swerve to the curb like the dude I'm froze, blow, you got that right Groove, with soul, and I'm still spinning Cross 110 and indicate I'm something else Black as face, deep as sea My is more natural high The man can't put no thing on me So dig me when my mind stretch out This astro black, time reaching into end Now be afro blue, Fighting out the corners, do my thing like Huey with a nigga. on HBCU campuses and the Black University Radio Network would like to thank each and every campus for your support over the years. That's right, 1996 to 2010, and we're still here. The love has been over the top, y'all, and we will continue to bring the hottest, most progressive topics to you that affect and stimulate urban culture, particularly for the 18 to 24 demo. And on today's show, we start the year off, I'll speak on the devastation that BP has caused in the waters of the Gulf Coast of Mississippi, Louisiana, and Florida, and how this disaster has directly and indirectly affected our lifestyles as we know it. Now, it's time to ban drilling in the USA and go green. The power is in the people, not corporations. 
And we sat down with a very talented young producer of the new gritty crime drama Takers, Mr. Will Packer, who is a Florida A&M graduate. That's right, fam, you Radler, stand up. He'll speak about his rise as a producer, that he has never had any formal film school, and what to expect from this film. Some are dubbing it as an urban classic already. And we'll grade the president after 18 months in office. That's right, we're going to grade President Barack Obama. Now, he did take over the country in the worst recession since the Great Depression in the 1920s, 1929 to be exact, and we'll give him a grade on everything he's done so far. All right, here next. Don't go nowhere. When urban entertainment news breaks, it's already waiting for you online at EURweb.com. That's www.EURweb.com. EURweb.com. Is it still too early to judge President Barack Obama? Is 18 months too early for a grade? Well, maybe so, but we'll break down the last 18 months and you be the judge. While the president has had some true accomplishments, the true measure of success will be based on how fast the economy can rebound and when people truly feel better about it. Now, that'll take some time still. Coming out of the worst recession this country has seen since the Great Depression, being involved in two wars, and the biggest meltdown the housing industry has ever seen, people still want to see full recovery before they believe the worst is over. And that's why his administration is still taking some hits. Now, people are still scared, angry, and frustrated, and halfway back still is not good enough. Now, still, there's an upside. There's some notable successes to list so far. Number one, president stepped in, issued a stimulus program, thus preventing the economic depression, and he fused support to GM and Chrysler, saving the auto industry. Now, GM has reported a $4 billion profit in 2009 to 2010, April, and passing health care reform and the Lilly Ledbetter Act to give women equal pay. No president has been able or willing to pass last two. Now, that's more than any other president has done on record in their first 18 months other than President Roosevelt, who passed Social Security and Welfare Acts in the 1940s. When it's all said and done and his White House days are over, we will give President Obama a final grade. But for now, the Black University Radio Network gives him a solid, strong A. That's where to go, baby. We caught up with the producer of the new gritty urban classic, Takers, Mr. Will Packard, a FAMU grad. That's right, represent FAMU. Now, this film is super hot. It stars T.I., Chris Brown, Idris Elba, Michael Ely, Matt Dillon, and the lovely, very talented Zoe Saldana. Now, here's the very proud producer, Will Packard, talking about the film. There's always that seminal film for a particular generation, you know what I mean? And so, I think for, um, you know, like this younger generation of movie moviegoers, this is going to be a film unlike uh, any that they that they have seen, really. And um, that's what we were out to accomplish. That's Will Packard, and you can check him out at takers.com or willpackard.com. He's here with us for two more days to speak a little bit about the film, how he came up with it, how he came up with his characters, and how he cast. So we'll talk to him a little bit later. Thanks for your time, bro. Easy as the underground indie joint blazing mixtapes across the country. Mellow Kane is ready to turn the heat up on the record industry, repping Southern California with his hot new album, The Uncomfortable Silence. To a buck in the rain, the hydro was anything but plain. To influence such vacuous saying, I'll engage in real conversation if allowed to. I live in a city where negativity surrounds The Uncomfortable Silence, due out this fall. 
visit Mellow Kane at facebook.com front slash Mellow Kane and check out his whole archive of classic mixtapes. They're bona fide street knockers, rich with that real hip hop. Visit www.mellowcane.com for info on the album's fall release, music sampling, downloads, and the request radio services. To review Mellow Kane's collection of white hot mixtapes available now, visit facebook.com front slash Mellow Kane. That's M-E-L-O-K-A-E. That's going to do it for this edition of Direct Effects, y'all. Make sure you check out those HBCU classics. The HBCU Street Team will be out at 10 of those classics. We'll be out at the Chicago Classic as well as the Atlanta Classic coming up. So we'll keep you posted on where we'll have that booth at until tomorrow. It's your boy right here, Lamar Blackman. Let's go. Listen to Direct Effects, boy. Black Agenda Radio. Mondays at 5 p.m. on the Progressive Radio Network. This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, analysis, and commentary from a black left perspective. I'm Glenn Ford, along with my co-host, Nellie Bailey. Coming up, economic insecurity has become a general fact of American life, but especially so for blacks and Latinos. And Rwandan President Paul Kagame, one of Washington's top allies in Africa, is the greatest mass killer on the face of the earth today, says author and activist Edward Herman. But first, for New Orleans, it's been a commemoration, but certainly not a celebration of five years since Hurricane Katrina. And the weeks after the disaster hit, the city's African-American leadership project was instrumental in drawing up the New Orleans Citizens Bill of Rights, including the right of all displaced people to return to their city. M. Tengulizi Senyike is head of the leadership project. We ask him to assess the accomplishments and failures of the past Five years. We are happy that we were able to um, influence policy of local government to ensure that everybody, um, that all the neighborhoods had an equal right uh, to to receive services. Because once the power elites saw that they were not going to win on the footprint reduction, the green dot thing, where the whole Lower Nine and New Orleans East would be turned into to green dot areas, uh, when they saw they weren't going to win there, the next strategy was to limit services, which in effect chokes off a neighborhood if you, you know, limit public services available to them. Uh, so we were happy that we were able to get uh, legislation passed to prevent that kind of discrimination from taking place, compelling the city to service uh, areas equally and not discriminate based on damage that uh, that had occurred and so we're happy about that we're happy that we helped to keep the the question of uh, right to return in the public consciousness uh we're happy that we um compelled the city council to recognize the neighborhood plans and prioritize um the, the most devastated neighborhoods as the ones most in need of you know of public resources i mean there's some things we think we uh, accomplished and, and, and did, but there's some battles we lost. For instance, the uh, increased uh, unaffordability of the city. Rents have gone up as much as 45%. Uh, market dynamics uh, uh, intervened, and we didn't win that. Uh, we were opposed to this whole-scale demolition of uh, public housing. 
but the the city council unanimously supported it, including the progressives on the council, because some of them thought that it was a good thing to do. Uh, we didn't. Uh, we thought it could have been done without whole scale demolition. It could have been revitalization without whole scale demolition. But we didn't. We didn't win on that, and I think the consequence will be even fewer uh, units available to you know to lower income people. So we we didn't. We didn't win on that. We didn't stop the police um, from their reckless, irresponsible behavior, though, to be fair about it, you know, the Justice Department is presently involved in New Orleans trying to address that, but we didn't We didn't stop that. Um, on the school front, you know, we didn't stop the school takeover from taking place, and now um, they're claiming all the success and progress that has been made as a result of the takeover. But what they are admitting is, as publicly so is that uh, before the storm, the average investment per pupil was uh, averaging around 5000 Now it's around 14000 as a result of uh, Katrina infusion, money from the federal government. So if the federal government doesn't sustain that infusion, uh, then those results will evaporate very quickly. Uh, so we've got, you know, mixed reactions to, to what happened in that regard. We're not happy that our city council is now five white and two black in a city that is 60% or more African American. We're not happy about that. It is what it is. We're not happy that we, um, that the, the mayor orality was lost to, uh, a non-African American, which is not to berate, uh, the present mayor. But, you know, certainly after 35 or so years of holding that position, um, we're not happy that we lost it. We're not happy about the distribution of the contracts and the money. The big question is what happened to the money? Uh, how did it get distributed? We don't see African Americans in significant numbers as having received a lot of the Katrina dollars. So so we, there's some things we won and some things we didn't win, and the the struggle continues. It's 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 not over. There's still forty thousand or more African Americans uh, or Lenians uh, right here in the Houston area, and uh, there are more in uh, in Atlanta and Baton Rouge and Memphis and places like that. So in the aggregate, there's about a good hundred thousand who are still out. Um, many of whom may never come back. So there are things to be, you know, uh, joyous about. Um, in some ways, and there are some things we think we accomplished uh, with other community organizers, and there's some things that we, we didn't accomplish. And I am really concerned, as many of us are, not just in the African-American Leadership Project, but many organizers are concerned about the, the direction that the city may be taking, which will continue to program black people and poor people out, um, turn out to be like, Aspen, Colorado, you can work here, but you can't live here. It's too too costly for you to live here. So you commute in here from the outer suburbs, which is where the poverty is uh, is now moving, is to the surrounding suburbs uh, and, and then out of Orleans Parish. So there's some real concerns, Glenn, that, uh, that we have about direction and what we've seen in five years. To be sure, she ain't what she used to be. The city has changed. And um, it's 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 wider, um, it's richer, um, it's more gentrified, and I think it's less welcoming to to people of color at the lower end of the spectrum. Although uh, we are still in the city uh, and still present in it, and the cultural apparatus 
has certainly made uh, made part of its way back. So there's some things to be noted that are on the upside and some things on the downside. Uh, let's like, take a look outside, get an assessment of the behavior, conduct of those forces outside of New Orleans, the established political forces such as the Congressional Black Caucus and other members of, of government, and the kind of response to the plight in New Orleans from uh, grassroots folks around the country. First of all, we want to applaud people of all races and nationalities in this country who uh, responded to the plight of New Orleans with their love, uh, with the opening of their arms, and uh, with their dollar resources. Uh, many of them came to the city and volunteered and still do. Uh, there was an incredible grassroots response from the whole of the country uh, to the plight of, uh, of Orleanians, and for that we are certainly thankful and appreciative to everybody in this country and, by the way, outside of this country, because there were many international responses as well uh, who offered to help and who, in fact, did help. So we appreciate uh, all of that. Um, the, the Congressional Black Caucus certainly has been consistent in its concern for New Orleans. Uh, uh, Congresswoman Maxine Waters, uh, in particular, has been very, very uh, aggressive about trying to ensure that New Orleans stays on the national agenda and that is, that resources be directed there. Uh, Clyburn from South Carolina, the, the uh, congressman from Mississippi who chairs uh, Homeland Security, I think that's Benny Thompson. He, too, has been aggressive and consistent. And so we've we've had good support there. We've had good support there. The bigger problem, of course, is freeing, has been freeing up the resources because the, the current administration, the Obama administration, inherited a mess from the predecessor Bush administration uh, whose response to New Orleans uh, at best could be called ambivalent uh, and at worst uh, just negligence, just sheer negligence. But that administration was, was terribly inconsistent in its com concern for New Orleans. Uh, the Obama administration came to office and, and announced that it was indeed um, going to put New Orleans high on its agenda for um, uh, resources and, and federal assistance in the effort to rebuild the, the Gulf Coast and, and that city. And they have been consistent in that regard. Uh, for instance, uh, when, the pre when the president took office, there was about two to two and a half billion dollars of federal money that was frozen that had been, had been uh, approved. Uh, but unallocated because somehow between Washington, D.C. and uh, Baton Rouge and the city, the money just never found its way to the ground. Uh, the Obama administration freed up that money uh, that was, was stuck, and uh, that money is now available. That happened during the Nagan administration, but it will be implemented during the current Landrieu administration. But it did happen. Uh, the president did talk to then-Mayor Ray Nagan to ensure that those monies were freed up, and the president kept his word, uh, you know, and unfroze those dollars. And we, we're starting to see uh, some of the effects of that in, in our infrastructure investments, for instance, that, that we're presently witnessing uh, in improvements in roads and police stations and libraries and th things like that, public infrastructure is what I'm describing here. We saw, we see a definite change in the uh, attitude and behavior uh, of, of the federal government. We see continued support from the Congressional Black Caucus. Five years ago, 
Many of us said, I know I said, that if the assault on black New Orleans wasn't a catalyst for a renewed grassroots mass movement among black people, then nothing ever would be. What were your expectations? There were some things that that I assumed um, could be operative. Uh, One is that there had to be uh, a FEMA response, and two, there, there, there was the possibility of citizen organizing. But outside of that, the question of mobilizing African Americans and other progressive people around the human um, uh, suffering of New Orleans and around the bureaucratic failure of New Orleans, to me, I, I'm not sure what I expected because the government was absorbed with uh, the Iraq War and this was not a government that, in my opinion, uh, was favorable to African-American interests at all for, for political reasons. Uh, the previous administration, the Bush administration, I don't think favored the interests of African-Americans at, at all. And so I'm not sure what I expected. But at the point of the, of the tragedy, I minimally expected uh, America to use all the power of the federal government to respond to what was happening to its citizens. It flunked that test. We know that it flunked that test. Now, as far as mobilizing black people in a, in a, in a broader sense, I think the, respond, the, the compassionate response of the black community was, uh, was evident to us. But beyond that, I think that what we expected people to grasp was the, the level of indifference. We, we wanted black folks to see the level of indifference being displayed by the federal government as a signal, an indication to them. That was one thing. The second thing was that they should be should should perceive themselves as being imminently vulnerable to disaster. And how well prepared were they to take care of themselves? What we try to say to everybody is the message here is you got to take care of yourself. You can't assume uh, that the public agencies are going to do that. You got to have a plan and a provision in your own community, in your neighborhood, on how you how are you going to recover in the event of a disaster because disasters are imminent. You don't, you can't control them, whether it's earthquakes or fires or uh, oil spills or tornadoes or, or other kinds of disasters, that uh, you have to have a plan. And we found that most African Americans didn't have a plan, that we were doing more to help others than they were doing to help us because everybody was caught off guard and in shock about what happened to black people in New Orleans, and they didn't believe that, that, that they were witnessing what they witnessed. But very few other places, Glenn had an, a real plan for what to do. So part of the mobilization that, that happened was helping people to respond, not just in terms of uh, what to do about New Orleans, but what to do about your own community. What is your own level of preparation? What's your own level of readiness? We do think that Katrina scared a lot of black folks into uh, seeing that they were vulnerable and that they could not, in fact, rely on the federal government. So they got mobilized, all right, but they got mobilized in, a, in, a, in another and different kind of way. Uh, the mobilization to help us, um, we, you know, we did, we, we, we did see that. I mean, we saw that as, as people went to the different cities, I think 47 states or something like that, where we were dispersed to. Uh, we certainly saw... Uh, responses, uh, affirmative responses on the part of African Americans who did mobilize to provide uh, assistance. I myself, for instance, uh, visited New York, uh, visited Boston, uh, 
visited California uh, and, and, and many other cities and spoke there uh, at public gatherings to give people up-to-date information. And there was a lot of support, just a lot of support to help um, New Orleanian families to readjust their lives, um, you know, with, you know, employment, schools for the children, uh, accessing the health care system. I mean, I think there was a good um, and marvelous response people to people uh, from African Americans especially uh, and, and black people who came to the different cities across the country. Every bit of data we, we, we received said that that was a, a positive mobilization. But again, the mobilization happened in reverse in terms of, of educating people about the level of exposure and vulnerability. That was good too. Now, as far as a broader mass movement, I think it probably uh, was evident in the election of 2008, the Obama election. I think part of that was uh, the pent-up frustration of black people with the Bush administration and its relative indifference and insensitivity to the interests and needs of black people. And Katrina was uh, exhibit number one, that if uh, there was any uncertainty about um, uh, how that particular party might respond, the Republican Party might respond. Katrina was exhibit number one for a lot of black people that we talked to. And so I think that you saw one form of mass mobilization uh, in the Obama election, uh, the, the general frustration with the Republican Party, the, the, uh, the conservative, conservative party. Um, and, and Katrina was certainly a part of what shaped people's consciousness about that party's indifference. So we think that that was one of the contributing factors to the election um, of President uh, uh, Barack Hussein Obama, and that was a, certainly that was a good thing um, to, have, to have happened. But these other vital lessons, too, about your own preparation, your own readiness, how will you take care of yourself, how will you take care of your neighbors in the event of a disaster, we think there was some mobilization about that. Now, we haven't gone back to check to see if those local plans are in place, but that's one of the things we're trying to find out from people to see if, it, indeed, they've done that. I know in at least five places there has been a lot of progress in that regard, but there's no data that would suggest uh, a more systematic response in that way. The one other thing that, that the experience has revealed is the depth of the, the, the racist class nature uh, of, of the, the capitalist system here. Because, you know, Amy Klein in the book uh, Shock Doctrine suggests the term disaster capitalism uh, and that New Orleans was really a test case. And indeed, she was absolutely right because privatization is the order of the day. Um, the school system has been privatized, you know, with public funding. Now the New Orleans Recreation Department is at least going to be semi-privatized. The economic development function uh, is, is slated for semi-privatization. Um, in, in, indeed, the, the consequence uh, post-Katrina has been this notion that government uh, is not the most effective way to deliver, but that's also being accelerated because of the racial change that has happened post-Katrina. Um, and that uh, we, we will see this increasing move <clears throat> towards privatization uh, of services, this more conservative approach to to delivery. Um, and the 
the takeover that, that indeed has taken place has opened the door to invite this, this notion that the services should be privatized out. Um, the more black political power um, is, uh, is achieved, the more there is a tendency towards decentralization of power, to remove power from the office of the mayor and to decentralize it and spread it out into other structures or to move towards the regionalism concept. And in the case of New Orleans, we've seen both things happening. Um, the weakening of the mayor's power by decentralization, uh, as well as an increased emphasis on regionalism, all of which has the effect of diluting uh, the effectiveness of black political power, such as it is, but diluting its effectiveness. And um, uh, privatizing also means putting dollars into the hands of those who already have it, white corporations and firms and businesses that already have it, and less of those resources go into the hands of African Americans, other people of color, local firms, or women's firms. We certainly see that that's one of the impacts that Katrina has had. More white people are in the city than were there before. Higher levels of uh, of gentrification and even further displacement of, of African Americans. So we've got a lot that we're worried about about the stability of African American people um, in the city over time because the forces. Uh, of the marketplace, you know, the dynamics of the capitalist market are, are uh, in, imposing new kinds of pressures in New Orleans that we did not see in the same way before Katrina. Mtangulizi Sanyika of the New Orleans African American Leadership Project. Paul Kagame, the president of the tiny African nation of Rwanda and a staunch ally of the United States, is the greatest mass killer on the face of the earth today. So says Edward S. Herman, the noted author and activist. Herman and David Peterson have a new book out titled The Politics of Genocide, in which they explore the word games and doublespeak the United States deploys to mask its own and its allies' crimes against humanity. Mass killings come in various flavors, depending upon whether the United States supports the killings or wants to vilify somebody else. Those categories, according to Herman and Peterson, are constructive genocide, the kind the U.S. commits, nefarious genocide, killings committed by the other guy, benign bloodbaths, killings that work out well for U.S. policy, and mythical bloodbaths, mass murders that really never happened but are invented by the U.S. to demonize an enemy. Edward Herman explains. Well, these are used sort of ironically. The way the world works, and the way the political system and the media work, is when we do the killing, when we do mass killing, I say in, in Vietnam, never called this genocide. This is a, this is a constructive endeavor. So it, uh, we, we, in the, our book, and in an earlier book I did with Chomsky, we talk about constructive bloodbaths. And in this new book, we talk about constructive genocide. They are the ones that we carry out. And again, I say it's ironical. We, since we do it, it has to be benevolent. It has to be good. It has to, it has to be justifiable. So a constructive genocide is a mass killing that we do, and it's constructed because we do it, and we're the good guys. If a client does it, for example, uh, in Indonesia, 
where there was a huge bloodbath back in 1965-66. We call this uh, a benign bloodbath, meaning we, we don't really don't get really upset about it. We we just take it as a, as a given and and uh, uh, and just sort of let it go. In fact, in the case of the Indonesia genocide, we actually were fairly enthusiastic because they were they were clearing up uh, the Communist Party and and a left opposition in Indonesia. And when Indonesia went into East Timor and killed, resulting in the death of maybe a quarter or a third of the population, that also was benign. We actually support, quietly supported that. But then if an enemy does this, if uh, Saddam Hussein kills a lot of people, or if Milosevic uh, engages in, in violent actions, these are our targets, therefore these are nefarious actions. We also use the term mythical for cases where we claim bloodbaths or mass killings or genocide when they, they weren't even real. We talk about this in connection with the Rakach massacre. So anyway, these are, are sort of cynical, ironic terms to describe the fact that we use words to fit our political needs. So for example, in Iraq, uh, when Saddam Hussein kills a lot of Kurds, that would fall under the nefarious category. Uh, but when yeah. the Americans kill a whole bunch of Iraqis, that is under the constructive genocide category. Yes. Yeah. In fact, we have uh, we talk about the sanctions of mass destruction in, in Iraq, which we imposed with the British through the UN in the 1990s, where hundreds of thousands of Iraqis died because we had destroyed their sanitation systems and they had serious disease. In the very famous episode that is really worth citing, uh, in 1996, Madeleine Albright on national television was asked whether the death of 500,000 Iraqi children as a result of these sanctions was worth it. And she said, yes, it was worth it. So here you had 500,000 children dying, and the United States Secretary of State says that it was worth it. Now, this is a pretty serious genocide. Of course, it wasn't picked up in the rest of the media. We did it. So it was a constructive genocide, just as the invasion. I mean, we killed another 500,000 or a million, or they died, that number died in the invasion occupation from 2003. But that also was constructive. So it, it, uh, the word genocide is not used to describe these things in the American media. But if, if what Saddam does it, when, when he went after his Kurds, as you say, when, when he used chemical warfare at Halabja, this was a genocidal act. You list the Darfur wars and the killings there and the uh, conflict in Rwanda and the mass killings of millions in the Democratic Republic of Congo as being treated as nefarious genocides by the United States. Please explain. Well, Darfur, of course, is a case where you have an, an Arab country and an oil-rich country, but where China is, has made inroads, it's therefore a potential target. And 
uh, when people, a lot of people died there in tribal wars and sometimes foreign sponsored invasions, but also some nasty actions from the central government. We, we got up on our high horse. We even, we, there were all kinds of campaigns carried out to save the Darfur, and the International Criminal Court has indicted the uh, head of state of Sudan for this. But um, in, in the case of the Democratic Republic of the Congo, we had many, many more people killed. There have been no indictments uh, there. That's, that's a state that was, has been invaded by Kagame and Museveni from uh, Uganda. And these are our friends. So this doesn't qualify as genocide. Darfur qualifies as genocide. Kagame is exempt from uh, international criminal court proceedings, and so is Museveni. Museveni. Somalia is not listed uh, on those genocides, uh, in those genocide categories, uh, but the United Nations at one point described the uh, Somali situation right after the Ethiopian invasion, which was uh, backed by the United States, as the worst humanitarian crisis in Africa. The United States wanted to go into Somalia. It was an Islamic government that was there for a while, and the United States has, it has oil. It, it, it's a vulnerable state. It's near Djibouti. The United States is, is, is trying to increase its power in, in Africa. So Somalia, Somalia is, is a vulnerable state and one that the United States does not want to be Islamic, wants to control. Much of its, many of its problems are a result of U.S. intervention and support of, of uh, the uh, Ethiopian invasion and its destabilization effort. We have, in a large measure, created the crisis in Somalia, but, but we want to be there to, to help control it. So we have a responsibility to protect there. So the responsibility to protect does not mean responsibility to protect Somalis, but responsibility to protect U.S. interests. Absolutely. But of course, it's always couched in terms of, of the responsibility to protect the people involved. You write in your book that the Western propaganda line on Rwanda, uh, where President Kagame presides, turns the perpetrator and the victim of mass killings upside down. What did you mean? Well, in the Western establishment view, Kagame is the savior of, of Rwanda. He came in and stopped the genocide. In fact, if you read the papers the last few days uh, about the Rwanda election, the papers always refer to the fact that Hutu death squads killed 800,000 to a million Tutsis and moderate Hutus in, in the, the genocide that occurred in 1994. That's the standard model, but that standard model is a lie. Actually, Kagame himself was the, the man principally responsible for the mass killings in Rwanda. He, he's been trying to take over Rwanda for years. He invaded Rwanda from uh, Uganda in 1990. With U.S. help, he penetrated the Rwandan government and infiltrated troops into uh, Rwanda. Uh, the shoot down of the, the 
president's plane on April 6, 1994, that everybody admits was the triggering event that started the genocide, was actually carried out by Kagame and his forces. And he was really ready. Within two hours of that shootdown, his forces were, were fighting, and they, they conquered Rwanda in 100 days. Also, another very important point that people don't, uh, don't recognize is that the UN didn't come in to help in this situation because the United States voted for a drawdown of UN troops in April 1994, which is what Kagame wanted. Now, why did he want a drawdown in UN troops if, if the Hutus were doing mass killing? The answer is he was doing the mass killing. He was the, the leading killer. He didn't want the UN to be obstructing him. And another thing that's really important to understand is that there were the census of Rwanda in 1991 showed only 600,000 Tutsis. And after the mass killings, according to the survivors' organs, there were still 300,000 at least. So that means the, the, well, the difference between the two is 300,000. That means that most 300,000 were killed. Well, if 800,000 and a million were killed, that leaves 500 or 700,000 Hutus. And the evidence is that it was mainly Hutus were killed, not Tutsis. In fact, in their book, we cite an internal State Department uh, memo of December 1994, in which it stated that the RPF, Kagame's forces, were killing 10,000 Hutu civilians a month. This is a State Department internal memo. That's a lot of civilians per month. And also, we ought to stress the fact that Kagame, after he took over control of Rwanda, didn't stop there. He went into the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and he's been in and out of there, allegedly chasing Hutu genocidists. But in a UN report of a couple of years ago, said that in Kagame's area of control in the Congo, there had been three and a half million excess deaths. Three and a half million excess deaths in Kagame's area of control. So actually, if you add that to the hundreds of thousands that he killed in the, uh, in the genocide, which was mainly a, a Kagame genocide, you're in the realm of four, four million plus. Idi Amin killed maybe a hundred, the largest estimates of Idi Amin's killings were 300,000. So Kagame's killings are some like 15 times as great as Idi Amin's killings, and yet Kagame is a Western hero. The reason, I'm pretty sure that the reason why this is so is that he was a U.S. agent. He was, he actually studied in Fort Leavenworth, and the United States supported him in Uganda. It supported his uh, moves in penetrating Rwanda before the genocide. It helped cool down the UN troops, reduce their number, while right after the uh, uh, the, the killing started, and. 
it also has suppressed evidence that he was responsible for the shooting down of the president's plane in April, in April 1994. The, actually, the uh, tribunal had an investigator study this, and he reported to the prosecutor that Kagame had done it. So what she did was consult with the United States and tell them they were dropping the investigation, and they haven't they haven't taken it up ever since. So that triggering event, uh, uh, the, the the tribunal has ignored, and the West has ignored, all in order to to protect Kagame's image as the savior, when in fact he was the killer. I, I think actually this turnabout, this upside down thing, is probably the, the most incredible that I've ever encountered in my life. I mean, to have a guy who I think Kagame is the greatest mass killer on the face of the earth today, and yet he's an honored leader of, and he's. The United States gives him military aid. He, we get his troops to help us out in pacification operations in Darfur and elsewhere. And we get him economic aid. He's an honored man. So uh, the question is, who is it that we, the United States would not honor? I, sh I should probably mention that you know, back we, we supported Suharto in Indonesia, who was a, a, a tremendous killer. And back in uh, 1994, New York Times had a front-page article in which they quote a Clinton official saying that Suharto is, quote, her kind of guy. Here's a mass murderer, a dictator, and the, the, the liberal Clinton administration welcomes him to Washington, says he's her kind of guy. Well... I guess Kagame is our kind of guy, too. We, we can sink pretty low on who is our kind of guy. In fact, Saddam Hussein was our kind of guy in the, in the 1980s when he was fighting against Iran. There was that famous picture of, of uh, Rumsfeld in Baghdad shaking hands with uh, Saddam Hussein and telling him what a fine fellow he was. So Saddam was really he he was also our kind of guy until he until he crossed the line. And in fact, in Africa, the regimes in Rwanda and Uganda are the mainstays in terms of U.S. proxies, military proxies in Africa. Uganda is the main force that is propping up the Somali regime, for example. When the Shabab claimed responsibility for a bombing in Kampala, Uganda. The American media said it was an example of the terrorists in Somalia uh, reaching out to destabilize the rest of Africa. Is that the way you see it? I think that, that there's actually even some question of who did it. Some, you know, quite a few people think that, that uh, Museveni is in electoral trouble and he needs a terrorist act just like George Bush did, he feeds on being the security protector of, of Uganda. So it's not absolutely impossible that, that, that those bombings were self-inflicted. But insofar, if, if it's true that the um, that rebel group from Somalia did it, this is part, arguably it's part of a war. I mean, it was a really a nasty act to 
to carry out against civilians. But uh, as you say, the uh, Uganda army is in Somalia. It's a proxy army for the United States serving to to uh, bring Somalia to heel. So if, if rebels in Somalia attack uh, Uganda, this is arguably warfare. It's actually uh, an answer to what uh, Museveni is doing. Actually, the United States takes upon itself the right to bomb anywhere in the globe now. We say somebody, there's a suspected terrorist in, in Pakistan or, or, uh, or Yemen or anywhere else. We can send drones there to shoot them down. I guess that's being kind of generalized. But when other countries do it, that's illicit. Your book explains how, in fact, your book is really all about the uh, imperial use of words as weapons. So what's all this supla really about with the supposed end of the U.S. combat role in Iraq? And that is a beautiful use of words. We we uh, we have still have soldiers there. Who, who, uh, some, in fact, we even have five thousand. We openly admit our combat troops, but the rest of them are well-trained American soldiers who are perfectly capable of engaging in combat. So what we've done is is play like we've exited from. Uh, any combat operations by redefining troops from combat troops to just training troops, advisory groups. I mean, this is this is standard practice. We're still in Iraq. And we're still we're still in uh, aggression occupation mode. And in fact, they've taken to calling U.S. bases fortified compounds. Yes, that's a beauty too. I wonder how we can. Of course, we have this embassy. I guess we're still calling that the biggest embassy in the world, just a plain embassy. But it, it's actually a, a place big enough to, to, to harbor troops and CIA agents. But we use words with a lot, a lot of practice skill and with imperial purpose. This imperial use and abuse of words, what does it do to the to the political conversation that folks should be having about the policy decisions their country makes on their behalf. Well, it makes it very difficult, and especially when the media will follow along with the usage of these words and will not challenge them. I mean, if, if we had an honest and decent media, when we you move from combat, redefine troops, and call them no longer combat troops, the media should be pointing out that this is a fraud and they should laugh at it. So it's essential in, in the use of these words to manipulate that the media play along and don't challenge the words, and they don't. Does the practice of having embedded media, that is reporters embedded in U.S. military outfits, uh, have something to do with this, or is it in the nature of U.S. corporate media to tell whatever line comes from the State Department and the Pentagon? Well, I think that it's the, latter, the latter is crucial. I mean, the uh, media are very cooperative with, and they're not going to, they don't challenge the, the militaries. The embedding was probably a useful little add-on, but it wasn't needed. I mean, we had that scandal, you recall, when 
uh, it was exposed that the Pentagon had actually encouraged the mainstream media and the networks to take on former military officers as uh, re regular commentators on military affairs. And so the, the numbers and the affiliations of these people that CNN and the rest of them have carried to comment on military affairs, the numbers of, of those who are military affiliated is staggering. And they actually were even on, on the military payroll. So, I mean, this was all done voluntarily. So tell me, Mr. Herman, who is better at the use and abuse of selective terminology, President Bush or President Obama? Well, that, that's a tough one. That really is a tough one. Mr. President Obama is, is very smooth. He's very cool and calm and collected, and he's smarter than Mr. Bush, so he's more effective in using these things. And I think he's more effective also as a spokesman for the War Party because we expected him to be different. He was going to give us change, and people had faith that we were going to move from Bush-Cheney and a, a permanent war system to some, a more greater focus on our civilian needs in America, which are huge and growing, and with a cutback of the military and a cutback of, of warfare, but it hasn't happened. Um, and, and in fact, you, you can even make a case that with the global use of drones and the ex a more aggressive expansion of NATO, that Mr. Obama has maybe even slight, somewhat escalated our military involvement. Because he, he's partly influenced by the fact that he, he, the Democrats always feel that they must rebut the charge that they're weak on national security, and they don't want to appear like wimps. So in a way, that makes them more dangerous. They, they have to prove their non-wimpiness, and they do this by dropping bombs and by in, in, increasing the military budget, it's a very distressing See, The language of deception, though, is, is, is fairly common. I mean, the, the use of, of doublespeak by our leaders, it, it may be done more smoothly by X than Y, but, but doublespeak is very important. Edward Herman and David Peterson's book, The Politics of Genocide, has a foreword by Noam Chomsky. A large and growing proportion of Americans are economically insecure. That's not just an emotional feeling, but people's actual relationship to the world of work and income. Jacob Hacker of Yale University headed up a study of the problem. Hacker's team came up with what they call an economic security index. The economic security index or uh, ESI is a measure of the economic security of American families. And the way it measures economic security is basically looks at the chance uh, that a family will experience a 25% or greater decline in their available household resources, which is basically their income uh, minus their medical costs. So if you have medical costs, that doesn't, uh, that takes away from your income. And so from one year to the next, do you experience a 25% or greater decline in those resources and not have an adequate safety net? And it's basically the measure is just to share of families that experience that decline. Uh, and what we found is that that 
chance that share has been going up dramatically over the last generation. So economic security, insecurity is increasing in the United States. What does that say about America's uh, vaunted, or is it mythical, upward mobility? Well, what it says is that in addition to upward mobility, which is certainly part of the American experience and has been for a long time, in fact, uh, there's some evidence that, econo- that upward mobility has declined in the last 30 years or so. Um, in addition to upward mobility, there's a great deal of downward mobility in the United States. And the kind of downward mobility we're talking about is these sudden devastating drops in income. An individual who experiences a 25% or greater loss in income might go from, say, $50,000 a year in income uh, to $37,500 or less and yet not have enough savings to deal with that loss. So these are really devastating shocks, and they're much more frequent than they used to be. And they are more frequent among blacks and Latinos than among whites. Far far more. Uh, For example, in 2007, uh, which was supposed to be a period of economic expansion, right on the eve of the Great Recession that we're suffering through today, um, white Americans were... uh, had a 12.3% chance of this kind of decline. About 12% of white Americans experienced a drop of 25% or greater, while African Americans experienced a decline uh, in that same year of around 18%. Um, So half again is big. And um, African Americans have uh, experienced during downturns, economic downturns, levels of economic insecurity in, in the past that were not achieved by white Americans in any of those downturns. So we're talking about a reality that's, that's much, that's across the board. Lots of Americans experience these kind of declines, but which is much more present among African Americans and Hispanics. Hispanics are relatively similar to African Americans in terms of the chance of these kind of large declines. We also see that 18 to 34 year olds were very likely to experience economic insecurity. Now, doesn't that portend a more fearful American future, this entire generation experiencing this insecurity? Well, we'll see what happens, of course. Um, It's always hazardous to to predict what uh, the effects of these kinds of shocks will be on Americans. What we do know is that people who experience unemployment and other very large economic shocks early in life seem to suffer those effects uh, for, for, for years to come. Um, the research is very clear on this, that during the crucial early years of establishment in the workforce between roughly 18 and 34, these kinds of dislocations have a long-lasting effect because people lose skills that they gained. Uh, they have a hard time breaking into the labor market. Um, this is obviously particularly devastating for African-Americans and particularly African-American men. Um, right now, we see levels of unemployment in the black community um, that are really truly astounding and frightening. And that's a whole generation of young uh, men and women who are going to have their formative labor market experiences scarred by these kinds of economic shocks. So we don't know exactly what the effect will be, but it could well be that these, these kinds of dislocations will live with them for many years to come. And how should this data inform us in terms of public policy? Well, I think it has two messages. The first message is that this is really an American experience. Um, We estimate that in 2009, one in five, 20% of Americans 
experience these big economic declines without, without an adequate safety net. So the first thing to say is that this is not something that's just happening to a fringe of American society. It's, it's, it's really a, a reality for, for all Americans. And in that sense, I think what we've learned during this economic downturn is just how long this long-term trend has played out in Americans' lives. And I think a lot of people sort of thought, saw the Great Recession that we're, that we're living through as this kind of, you know, bolt out of the blue. But for many Americans, particularly black Americans, uh, they've been living with high levels of insecurity for a long time. And this is just a, an indicator of how um, serious the problem is becoming. The second message is that we can act on this. Um, we can respond to this problem because we know, first of all, that 20 or 30 years ago, these kinds of shocks were less frequent. And second of all, we know from the evidence that we've assembled why people are experiencing these dislocations. That the, the two main things are that there's a greater chance that people are going to have these big declines in income and at the same time not have a, a personal safety net of financial wealth. So we need to do more to try to shield people against labor market dislocations of the sort that cause these kinds of declines, as well as health care costs, which turn out to be a big source of risk for many families. And at the same time, we need to think about how do we encourage people to build up um, financial wealth to deal with these shocks on their own. So government has two roles. We have to have a, a reasonably strong safety net for the short term, but we also have to have a strategy for the long term to help people build up their own assets to gain their own sources of economic security. And, and in that sense, I do think both liberals and conservatives, Republicans and Democrats, if they can get past the, you know, the current polarized fight over the role of government, could see a goal uh, here that they would find attractive for, for conservatives um, the idea of encouraging people to save on their own, to have stable sources of wealth, is something that they've long championed but not always supported. And for those on the left, I think the idea that we need to improve the safety net is now self-evident. And if we can try to bring those two sides together, make the investments necessary to ensure economic security for the future, the hope is that we can, we can reverse this tide of increasing insecurity in the United States. Well, of course, some people do profit from economic insecurity. When working people are feeling insecure, they tend to make less demands of their bosses. Yes. I mean, there's no question in my mind that this transformation has been partly caused by the weakening of workers relative to, um, uh, to management and business. And, and I think part of the way in which we could address this problem is to strengthen organized labor, particularly to strengthen unions uh, in parts of the workforce that uh, are most insecure, the service sector, for example. You know, it's ironic that the areas of the workforce that are, that are most secure, such as the public sector, where, where teachers and firefighters and other workers are employed, um, tend to have fairly high rates of unionization. That's not a coincidence, obviously. That's part of the reason why the, um, they're secure. But there's parts of the economy low-wage workers, people who are working in restaurants and retail establishments um, that are extremely insecure, and yet there's essentially no unions whatsoever. So I think that would help. I think the other thing we should recognize is that business ultimately benefits when people have a basic level of security. Someone who's really worried about losing their job may not demand greater benefits, may not demand greater wages, but they're also not going to invest in 
their productivity, they're not going to feel loyal to their company. So if we have a, you know, a higher road uh, to economic productivity and profits, one that may not be quite as great for, for some employers, but which produces an overall level of prosperity that's much greater and much more stable, then I think, uh, then I think we're all better off. Um, so that's the hope, that we can have a win-win situation. But I, I'm, not at all, um, I'm not at all unaware that there's going to be fierce political conflicts and conflicts in the private sector over this goal. I just don't think that Americans can wait any longer to start to demand greater economic security. Jacob Hackers, Keen's work was funded by the Rockefeller Foundation. And that's it for this edition of Black Agenda Radio, produced by the same team that brings you blackagendareport.com on the Internet. I'm Glenn Ford, along with my co-host, Nellie Bailey. Our thanks to the good people at the Progressive Radio Network, and especially to our engineer, Caitlin Fitzgerald. Try your best, never settle for less, and we'll guarantee you'll be a success.
Mafia.